what happened is that we focused too much on supply. So we had to, at one point, like 400, 500 hosts and no demand. <laughs> we, had, we had not figured out how to bring people in. So what happened is that most of the supply churned. So we wasted our time. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talked to Maxime Villemur, founder and CEO of space share and storage platform, ShareBee. When Airbnb and Uber first launched, the majority of people thought they would never succeed. Sleeping in a stranger's home in another city? No thank you. Getting into a stranger's car instead of a traditional taxi? Never. The stories are now infamous of VC firms passing up on opportunities to invest in these companies, thinking that these concepts would never catch on, and understandably so. However, the success of these controversial startups began paving the way for what would become known as the sharing economy. In the following years, everything that was shareable was put onto a marketplace and turned into a startup. Car sharing, bike sharing, parking space sharing, and even kitchen sharing marketplaces all began to pop up as a result. But with all these double-sided marketplaces appearing, one area that was left largely untapped was the storage industry. And while most are comfortable staying in a stranger's home, the idea of leaving personal belongings at one was still a challenge. But for a former professional poker player who won 1.7 million in a European poker tournament and then went broke before the age of 23, risk isn't really much of a concern. As the saying goes, if you risk nothing, then you risk everything. I was always very ambitious, even, even as a young, uh, young kid. Um, and I told my, my dad um, that I wanted to be a very rich lawyer. <laughs> and, and then... Um, you know, my, my dad, uh, his dad died when he was very young. And I, uh, you know, later on when I reflected on this, I always felt like he was, um, wasn't was like pushed to be ambitious himself. Uh, so he kind of told me like, well, you don't know how our life is, son. So be, you know, uh, he tried to bring down my ambitions, uh, which I, you know, I always remember to this day how it felt, like wow. how I felt. And then so, yeah, so I, I remembered from that moment that, you know, I it kind of cut the grass off my, my feet. Like, uh, I was like, why, why would he say that to me? And why then, would he, why would he reduce your ambition? Yeah, exactly, bit, right? exactly. It should be the other yeah. way around, fuel your dreams. I, exactly, exactly. But, you know, I, I still kept going. Um, I remember uh, also, um, and uh, so I grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood. My parents were, we were like middle class, but the neighborhood was very poor. Uh, so I was like maybe nine, 10 in, in the, elementary elementary school and um i was one of the only ones with a color printer color printer mm. so and it was like uh during the pokemon boom um and so there was like a lot of demand for like pokemon stuff like uh, yeah. stickers and stuff so i was like why don't i print out color like color perfect pokemons uh and then sell them back to, to kids at my school. <laughs> in elementary school. Yeah, exactly. I was nine or ten. Yeah. And uh, so I started taking orders from, what's your favorite Pokemon? What's your favorite Pokemon? And then uh, I would bring that back home and then print out and then sell them for a dollar. Wow. <laughs> so that was your very first business. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And then, um, so I, and I made like a thousand in a month 
Wow. Yeah, selling Pokemon like pictures, basically. To kids in elementary school. Yeah, you exactly. Made $1, like, basically, like, their allowance or something, like they had a dollar or two per week. Yeah. So I, I, I was taking that you were out. Taking that. Yeah, what would exactly. you do with that money at 10 years old? So I was just putting it in like a... Um, you know where you put your pencils? Right. Yeah, just I had a one jar, just for yeah. the cash. Yeah, okay. exactly. And then, um, so just to um, make also a, a point with from uh, like what my father told me, uh, my mom found out that I had this stash of money. The, yeah. She didn't know what, what it, where it was coming from. So when I told her what I did, she actually was very mad at me. So I was like, why is she mad? Like, yeah. I'm just, you know, it's a win-win. Like, they, they like the, the pictures. They can't afford a color printer. And, and I'm making money out of it, you know? Like, for me, I was like, this is great. Yeah. And you know what she did? Uh, she asked me to give back the money to every kid. Wow. Yeah. But you're, you weren't selling anything bad. I know. Were... Yeah, but, uh, like, my... I guess it's, it's a common thing in Quebec, French Quebec, like... Being an entrepreneur or being someone with ambition, it's it's uh, it's frowned upon. Like it, people look at, at this and they they think you're like a, some type of a peddler or something. Like you're you're not honest or something. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? Like the this mentality in French, you you call it "né pour un petit pain." Like uh, so, I so I was like, okay, my parents like were really like bashed when they were ch- ch- as a child themselves. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, that didn't stop me. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, I'm going to give back the money. I cried a little bit because, you know, so I you, wanted to buy stuff back with the that. Money. Yeah, she made me give back the money. Wow. Uh, so I had to give it back. Um, so, yeah, so I finished elementary school, uh, started high school in, in a enriched program, and I, I wasn't really motivated. Uh, I had, you know, good grades without really studying, but I was, I, you know, I hated school. Liked some, some classes, but, you know, most of the time I was bored. I had this uh, event in my life where I fractured my uh, femur. And um, I don't know if you say it's, it's called a femur in English, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was two years in crutches. Wow. So like, two it years. completely crushed yeah. me. Yeah. Anyone that's been on crutches before knows how difficult that is to be on yeah. crutches, let alone for two years. I mean, that's, that's a tough yeah. period of, of your life. It was I guess. very tough, yeah. So I, I actually uh, like became very more uh, solitary. Uh, I dived into video games, uh, so started playing World of Warcraft, uh, more Counter-Strike, all that stuff. So became very good at it, but uh, I wasn't as social as, as I was before. Um, became obese. So, you know, I'm a very intense person, so whatever I do, I do it very, like, 110%. So I just kept playing video games, eating and stuff, and mm. so not moving. I was in crutches as well, so it didn't help. Right. So I think it was a year before the end of high school, well, when I had no more crutches, so I was finally free somewhat. I uh, started, you know, doing some more sports and stuff, shed off some weight, and um, went on to go to CJAP. But I really didn't know what I w- wanted to like with my life. So after one year in psychology in the CJAP, uh, I think it was uh, Maisonneuve, CJAP de Maisonneuve, I found out about poker. <laughs> so I, I watched uh, on, the, I think one on, it was on ESPN, okay? So uh, I watched Chris Moneymaker, uh, which was like one of the first no-name, uh, it wasn't a poker pro or something, to win uh, the World Series of Poker. He was like an amateur poker player. Exactly, that, he was know. an amateur, and he won like for a couple of millies. So I was like, 
well, if, if that dumb guy can do it, I can do it, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, uh, I, I, you know, I started uh, reading uh, uh, around poker books, you know, uh, you know, poker forums. Um, and like you said before, everything you do, you do it at 110%. Exactly. So you're, you're really diving in, not exactly. just like a light overview of it. Exactly. My goal was to be the best, Yeah. right? Uh, so, like, school completely, like, uh, went off my mind. Um, and uh, I took my mom's credit card and then uh, put uh, 50 bucks in, in a, I think it was called Paradise Poker at the time, a very uh, uh, early stage uh, poker site, and then lost that. And then my mom find, found out, uh, and she obviously happy. she put, no, she wasn't happy. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so, but I knew, you know, it was variant. So it was only like, uh, you know, when, I, I can go over a little bit more into details uh, around poker, but it, poker, what I explained it to people is like chess, with luck, which is why there's a lot of money in poker and not a lot of money in chess. Uh, chess is very, like, when someone's better than you, they're, they're going to beat you 99.9% .9 of the time. Right. In poker, it's, it's not like that. Like, they, an amateur that sucks can win over you and right. make money, which is why there's a lot of money and there's that uh, uh, chance fallacy where when they win, they think they're good. Right. When they lose, they think they're unlucky. Mm. which is very fallacious. <laughs> it's, it's, that's probably similar to, to investments as well, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Stock, stock market and yeah. stuff, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so although the odds, I mean, if you're a good poker player, you could still tilt the odds in your favor, but there's still luck involved. Is yeah, well, yeah, there's luck involved, and, um, you know, poker is purely statistics. It's purely statistics. So, yeah, going back, I, so I starting taking these shots while, you know, I, I was skipping school, playing World of Warcraft and, and, uh, poker. and poker. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> At the same time, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And then uh, I, I told my mom, okay, this is it. I'm quitting school to start a, a poker player uh, career. <laughs> and I'm sure like, she liked that. Um, she said, I think, quote, I'm quoting her, uh, okay, uh, if you don't go to school, you go live with your father because they, they just had divorced like a year ago. Uh, a year before that, and um, so I was like, okay, fine. My, my dad di didn't really care. Was, that, was, was that supposed to be a punishment if you quit uh, school? You... Well, she, she, I think she, she didn't want to see me like not do yeah, things studying. like this. So I said, yeah, for sure, I'm going to go with my father. I know what I'm doing, you know, right? Uh, if you don't want to let me, I'll go with my father. <laughs> so basically, I went into this uh, town uh, called Grandmère. Uh, it's like near Sherbrooke. Very like, I was completely isolated, which was what I wanted. I wanted to focus on online poker. No uh, distraction. Yeah. So I was flat broke. Um, and my grandma gave me 80 bucks. She's like, okay, buy so yourself some food. Because I don't know if your father is going to feed you for the first week or something. Uh, so here's, here's 80 bucks. And uh, you know what I did with it, obviously. You didn't use it on food. No. <laughs> I put it back uh, uh, in a poker site. And I remember the day I moved in with my father, uh, I played a tournament uh, that night on party poker, and I won that tournament for like 1,500. Wow. So uh, I, I was very lucky to win that tournament, uh, but it, it's how my career started.
So um, basically from that point, I started grinding like 12 to 14 hours a day, reading, playing, getting better at poker, discussing and strategic um, you know, uh, plans around poker. And uh, it was very intense. And, and then how old are you at this time? Uh, so at this time, I, I was, uh, I hope the police not uh, listening. I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was 17. So... Um, so yeah, and and then I built it. So after a couple of weeks, uh, maybe two months, I built up a ten thousand uh, dollar bankroll. Wow! So I was actually helping my my father pay the rent <laughs> through poker. Yeah, exactly. And he knew he knew what was going on. With yeah, that. exactly. It was like, yeah, sure, that's cool. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, uh, which uh, I think. Uh, it didn't care much, I think. Like, it was like, okay, well, let him try and then we'll and what see. was your mom saying about this at this point? Um, she, uh, I had no contact with her, actually. Yeah, I had no contact with her. Yeah, I, I was not speaking to a lot of people. I was just focusing on poker. Yeah, and, and people that were playing poker. Um, so basically, we moved back in Montreal because I wanted to, uh, I knew some uh, live games like illegal uh, live games that were going out into uh, like a little Italy and stuff like that. Um, so moved back to, in Montreal, and then my dad was dropping me off at, at these illegal games <laughs> and was raking in like a thousand to two thousand per per night. Wow. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that was funny. So I, he was dropping me off at like seven. I would I would have dinner uh, at the poker uh, table and then play until like three four a.m. and then that was my routine. I was playing online a little bit during the day, go live during the night, and then. Were you more successful playing online or playing live? Um, so the nice thing about live it was that there's even less good players. So uh, you know the 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 average player was was um, was very bad. So a lot of people were spewing money. Which, I would have thought it'd be maybe the opposite, more better players playing live, especially in underground type scenarios, right? Well, it really depends. Like it was pretty early stage for online poker. Um, and uh, there were a lot of bad players, uh, don't get me wrong. A lot of people became millionaires like during 2007, 2006, uh, during the party poker uh, boom. Boom, yeah. And it all started because of Chris Moneymaker, <laughs> uh, because an amateur won the World Series. So, you know, uh, so I kept grinding, kept grinding. Um, you know, I was pretty uh, happy with my life. You know, I was playing, doing something I, I loved, uh, getting better at it, and was making a lot of money. Uh, so... There was that point where I became friends with someone uh, uh, online who was a very good player. He's actually uh, a colleague at Sherby now as well. Uh, his name is Eric. Um, basically, he lived in Laval, and he had a very nice uh, get poker game, and he, he had a nice personality. He was very ambitious. So we, we, you know, we became friends quickly online, and I decided to move in with him in Laval. So basically... Um, Gave some cash to my dad and then left and, and went to Laval uh, with him. And then we started really like grinding like crazy and then getting better at, at the game, going out. You know, we, we had that, that crazy lifestyle. And then, um, so I built up like a 40, 50K uh, bankroll at, the, at, the, at this time. So I was a uh, major now. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was 18. Um, so, and then grinding out for uh, maybe six months. I turned 19. And then uh, we went on a, a uh, poker trip. Basically, we there was that uh, poker tournament uh, series called uh, European Poker Tour, and uh, it was like across Europe. Uh, and uh, so we decided to do it. 
basically do the tour. Why not? Yeah. You got some money in the bank. Uh, exactly. Have fun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was one of my first flights ever as well. Like, um, actually, when I turned 18, I went to Bahamas, uh, which, which was my first flight ever. Uh, Outside of Quebec. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, first time taking a plane. Yeah. So yeah, moved in with Eric in Laval and then uh, grinded like crazy. And then we decided to do this Euro trip. Um, and my life changed again at this point. So we land in a city called San Remo in Italy. And then when we land, uh, we meet with other Poker Stars players, okay, uh, which were there for the for the tournament. For the tournament, exactly. Uh, and the nice thing about uh, online poker also was that you were able to win the seats to play in live tournaments that were sponsorized by Poker Stars online. So a lot of uh, very good online poker players would win their seats and then go uh, play, play live. live. Exactly. Right. So I met with this uh, guy called Jason, uh, an American from Florida. So he was a what, what we call a supernova elite. That means that he, he, the the prior year he grinded like two million poker ends online to get that status. So it was 24 tabling. So he was playing 24 tables at the same time, 12 hours a day, three, uh, 365 days a year. So he, he has all his screens set up at home and they're divided. And uh, I've seen this before. And exactly. You got, and you're just playing every hand yeah, on because every screen. W- when you become good at poker, or decent at least, 80 to, 95, 80 to 90% of your decisions are instant. You know what to do and what what situation. There's that ten percent where you need to take like a, at least an extra minute to think about it because it's a, either a spot that you never saw before, uh, or you know you really need it's a very big bet or something and you need to think about it about stats and stuff uh, and prior ends that were played. So yeah, met with Jason uh, Supernova and uh, we got drunk that that first uh, night and uh, we actually told each other, hey, let's exchange. 10% of our tournament winnings. Okay. Let's exchange 10%. Yeah, so basically in poker, that's called uh, swapping. So basically, um, you know, we respect each other's games. So let's mitigate risk and swap some percentages. So that way, if, if, if he wins and you don't, you yeah. profit a little bit and vice versa. Exactly. So it's, it's very common for poker players to do this with uh, a couple of good players they respect. So that way they mitigate the risk. So if one of them go deep in the tournament, uh, well, they can make a you know a couple thousands or a couple of hundred thousands, depending on the price pool. So um, so yeah. So first you just time had we a, met, a handshake agreement on exactly. This? Yeah, it's very uh, it's very reputational in poker. So because when you're you're good and active uh, poker player online, there's there was that forum called Two Plus Two. It's it still exists and uh, you know people discuss there. And if, if you screw someone up, your reputation is is over and nobody wanted that um so it was an end shake and i first time i met the, the guy <laughs> and, and uh and well he went on to win that tournament he went on to win the tournament he won the tournament for i think it was 1.5 or 2 million so i had 10 percent of that so that's yeah. two hundred thousand yeah. dollars in your pocket exactly and how did you do in that tournament uh i i busted i think on day three so i i went a little bit deep but made no money so he won that tournament. <laughs> that, you know, I'm very lucky. <laughs> so, so And there was no problems here. He writes you a check for... Yeah, 10%. basically what he did. So it was a 10-day tournament. And I had left San Remo at, at the time to pursue uh, the other tournament that was... I think it was in Rome or... Uh, 
uh, I don't remember, but uh, it was another uh, a city. And uh, so basically, uh, two days after he won, he transferred me uh, the amount on PokerStars. A nice little wire. That's yeah. a nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after that, um, you know, I, I was a, a, a decent to good poker player. Um, decided to um, go and play uh, Irish stakes. Uh, which in hindsight wasn't a very good decision, but I, I'm very uh, bull on risk. So, uh, you know, I started playing uh, bigger games online. So uh, where you have like a thousand, two thousand on the table uh, and I was playing 10 tables at the same time. So, you know, you can have very good sessions or very bad sessions. So uh, during the, this time, you know, I had sessions where I could lose 10 to 15K uh, and then win as well uh, the, the, that same amount. So... After that, I think I played another tournament or we visited a city and then uh, I split up with my travel buddies. So Eric and, and one of my good friends, Antoine, who's also an investor in Sherby. And uh, so basically they went on their way and I, I was, you know, I wanted to keep pushing. So I went into the biggest tournament that was in, in Monaco. Uh, that was a, f a finale of, of the Euro European Poker Of the EPT, tour. right. Exactly. Uh, it was called uh, Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo final. And basically what I did, I sold off 50% uh, of my stake up front because the uh, entrance fee was 10,000 euros. So uh, it was a little bit too much for my bankroll at the, at the time. You always try to have at least 100 buy-ins in any game you go to, to mitigate variance, to, you know, so variance e evens out. So sold out 50% of my action. Um, to who? Uh, to a couple people. Eric... I asked Eric, do you, want a, do you want a piece? He said no. And then you'll see why I regret it later. <laughs> so, uh, so someone is basically could invest in a poker player in a tournament. Exactly. If, exactly. They, if they put up 50%, thing. you get 50% of the winning. It's an investment. Exactly. Right. And if you're very good, you can even ask for a markup. Okay. So, um, so, so 50% for 30% of the winning. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe not, not as aggressive, but, but you, you get the along idea. Along those lines. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So basically, um, sold 50% off. And then, uh, so went to Mar Monte Carlo by myself. You know, to, I remember I took the train to uh, to Monaco. I was sleeping in the train because it was like a nine-hour ride. Uh, arrived there and starting feeling sick, like a like a big flu. So I was like, okay, damn. <laughs> so start start playing, and then I get nice momentum. I make nice plays, uh, and then I'm building up a very huge stack. Like I, I think I was in top 20 on day three, four. So I started building. Um, played uh, big ends against very popular players that were sponsorized by either Full Tilt Poker or Poker Stars and kicked them out of the tournament. So I started getting that PR. Like, uh, Is this on TV too? Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's all on YouTube actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's all on YouTube. So yeah, so I uh, started getting some momentum and uh, <laughs> I remember I got a PR uh, release because um, one of the interviewers, I think, was on the table. And then uh, during a big end, uh, one of the guys asked me, what's your online screen name? And I, I, I was like, I had a, a hoodie on and stuff. And uh, I told him, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and then they, they went on to uh, draft an article that was like, who's the uh, you know, unknown, very young, uh, baby face poker player? You know, who's this guy? You it know? created a mystery around <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And th that wasn't the, yeah, I didn't want to do that, but it just happened. And then the fever started kicking in as well. So I was sick. Like, I was very sick. And then uh, basically fast forward a couple of days um, down to final table. So I made the final table. 
And then uh, at this point, I was I was like a maybe 50 uh, Celsius fever at the table. So I was very sick, like 100 Fahrenheit uh, Celsius, uh, fever. So I was very sick. I had to stop sometimes to go and vomit uh, at the bathroom. Wow. So I was very sick. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, managed to uh, finish third in that tournament wow. for 1.7. 1.7 million yeah, was exactly. the third place payout. Exactly. In yeah. Monaco yeah. during a 100 Fahrenheit fever. <laughs> exactly. In a massive poker yeah. tournament. And I was very unlucky, actually. The, like the end that got me out, I was very unlucky. But uh, it's it's on YouTube if, if, you want, if you guys want to go see it. So you walked away with 1.7 million, but you had your 50% investment. Exactly, exactly. So basically within a month, I became a millionaire. Yeah, at the age of 19. So... I started having a very intense lifestyle and partying, uh, you know, doing other stuff. And I, I wasn't, you know, I was spending a lot of money, a lot of money. Like my personal burn rate was crazy. <laughs> and my, you know, I started having this, I was postponing winning more money. So basically I was like, well, it doesn't matter if I spend a lot, uh, I'll just win it back uh, when, when I do, uh, you know, when I go intense for a month or two. Um, which was a very bad way of thinking and managing money. So I didn't buy any real estate, almost got to buy real estate, didn't, choked. I wasn't very uh, mature at this time. I was very uh, like a brat. Uh, I was very um, arrogant. So, I, you know, and I had no, like my parents didn't teach me uh, money management skills. Not only I play, played against very good players online and lost, I also spent a lot of money. And this is this is understandable for for someone your age that comes into that much money that quickly. Well, I know like most of my friends didn't go this route and are still very rich. So I think it's you know so fast forward a couple of years, I also didn't have the passion to play anymore. To me, it felt like I hit this this top where not in terms of skills, but in terms of uh, why am I playing poker? Like I want to change the world, and and this is just me getting money you know it's an individualistic yeah, hobby almost. yeah and i didn't feel that our calling like that you know that thing that makes you wake up uh, every morning and just do 12 14 hours i didn't feel it anymore so i was keep i was still playing so i wasn't as focused and as good and also i was spending a lot of money so both of these uh made me go broke so for millionaire to broke at the around the age of 23 so, um, and at the time also, uh, I, I met up with my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, uh, and she became pregnant after a month. We met each other. So I also had a kid. You're having your first kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was broke, had a kid, and I, I didn't want to play poker anymore, but I had no work experience. So uh, from that time, I was pretty depressed, actually. I was like, what the... F I'm going to do with my life, you know? And I was trying to keep pushing playing poker, but it wasn't in me anymore. You know, I, di I didn't love it anymore. I wanted to change the world in other ways and, you know, give value to people, actually, and uh, not only take money away from them. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I became depressed. Uh, and then I, I uh, actually, I, I did a, a minor in philosophy during that period uh, at the Université de Montréal. Um, just... I, my, my idea was that go back to basics uh, and then go back up from there. 
so I, I studied like uh, philosophy of language, philosophy of um, science and stuff like that. It was just for personal satisfaction. Build your education and yeah, learn. Yeah, exactly. And, well, yeah. It, it wasn't even like, oh, I'm going to be a professor or something. It right. was more like, I'm interested in that, so I'm going to do it. And then uh, I got this job. So I moved in, we're in Rosemont at, at this point in my life uh, with my girlfriend and uh, uh, our son. Uh, Joshua was uh, one-ish at this time. And... Um, This guy comes who has a startup, uh, meat delivery startup, basically, a new concept from, uh, he outsources meats from Quebec farms directly delivered to uh, your table. Uh, so I was like, oh, that's very cool. That's What was that called? Uh, it's called Alimentation Maison. It still exists. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I was like, that's very cool. And then he, so he was the owner, was doing door to door, and he was, He's the one who also actually showed up to the uh, appointment to sell meat to me. <laughs> so I was like, uh, we were at this meeting where, uh, in my house where he was trying to sell me a 40 bucks worth of meat, uh, which I actually took. And then I asked him, uh, are you hiring or something? Because my sister's looking uh, for something. You know, mm -hmm. It was for me, but <laughs> I wasn't it. ready. Uh, my ego wasn't ready. <laughs> um, so basically... Uh, The week after, I, I went back to his office, which was very close to my, my apartment, and uh, he hired me. I, I was his first employee. As a, in a sales role? Yeah, a sales, yeah. So I, I started shadowing him, and then uh, that was my first job ever, and learned a lot, uh, a lot of stuff from him. And then, uh, so basically, I, I, I sold to houses um, uh, with a 95% success rate for six months, and then uh, switched a role for CEO. So I became the CEO and then we built that business together uh, with, uh, with our employees and then we grew it to 75 people and 6 million in uh, ARR in uh, 2.5 years. Wow. Yeah. So I was so very he was pretty happy that. with you. It's fair to yeah. say. Well, you know, he's, he's an amazing entrepreneur um, with, with his flaws, obviously, but, you know, I, I took the best from him and then, um, yeah, so, you know, we, we built that and, You know, I, I felt like I was making a difference. People love that product. It's not only uh, outsourced from Quebec farms, but also flash frozen, which you can keep that meat in your freezer for 100% quality for like one to two years. Vacuum packed, delivered to your door. So I just like the value proposition. And uh, I love the product. So, you know, it was very intense uh, in it. So fast forward a couple of years, I uh, got that startup experience now. And I was... Um, You know, I had some difference with, with the CEO. I wasn't an owner of the company I wanted to be. At this, at this point, I, I felt like I proven myself. Uh, so we, we weren't able to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, make an arrangement. So uh, I decided to leave and join another company where I doubled my salary. But I didn't like the product as, as much. Uh, so I spent six months there. Was this also another startup? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't. Well, uh, we like to joke inside that it was a hundred years old startup because the business was 108 years old. It was a carpet and um, uniform delivery uh, business uh, for like uh, factories and stuff. So they don't. So basically, they are uh, uh, businesses to take the, the clothes from the workers and then clean it up and then do some type of uh, switching uh, over days or weeks. Uh, so I, I didn't like the product. To me, it wasn't very sexy. I, I was still uh, you know, interested in uh, optimizing the operations there. So fast forward six months, not in love with the product. Learned uh, quite a few stuff around the, uh, during that period. I did a, a Lean Six Sigma uh, certification in McGill. 
studied um, uh, one year uh, management at McGill. I, it's around this period, uh, so it was uh, May 2018, uh, 2016, I got the idea for Sherby. Hey everyone, just a quick word from our sponsor, Breather. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. Visit breather.com to learn more. So my wife was pregnant with our second child and wanted to go into a bigger house, bigger uh, place to live. And we're visiting that place in Unsick where, where I still am, and uh, which was a seven and a half uh, with a double door garage. So we loved that, that place. Uh, it, was, it was pretty uh, uh, expensive. So I was in the garage thinking, uh, what can we do with that space that we don't need to pay the rent? So I thought about Airbnb, but go figure why nobody would sleep in my garage. <laughs> so, um, you know, just a couple of hours after that visit, I was like, maybe people would put stuff in there instead of people, you know. And, um, you know, my, my mind got spinning. The wheels start turning. Exactly. Thinking, maybe there's something here, especially during this whole boom of, uh, of share economies with Airbnb and exactly. Uber and things like that. Exactly. It makes sense. So, yeah, exactly. So I was... Uh, I wouldn't say I was a very uh, active user of Uber, but I was taking Uber and the Uber X. Like, uh, I remember where, when there was only Uber, uh, they had taxis and then they introduced Uber X. So anyways, um, I thought maybe people would rent space in my garage, uh, could make money, and then they would you know, pay less and stuff. Because I remembered also a bad storage experience I had a couple of years back where it was very expensive, uh, you know, no service at all. Um, you know, they increased the rent during the, my rental contract. So a couple stuff like that that I felt like the, the experience wasn't frictionless and that it was very expensive and not necessarily convenient. So then started doing some research uh, during work hours and then found out that this concept existed in France. So I was like, okay, there's something here. And there's France, some type of validation. Exists. Okay. Exactly. There were three startups doing this in France. Only. But none in North America. Exactly. Well, only one in North America at this time. And a couple ones that, stri- that tried, but were too early and failed. Because uh, executing on marketplaces, it's pretty tough. Pretty tough. And um, so, yeah, so I thought, okay, there's something here for sure. So starting doing more research, uh, build up like a very, you know, small, a small deck. Uh, I had no experience doing decks at all. Uh, built up a small deck and then uh, went to my good friend Antoine, who, who uh, I play, whom I played poker with for a long period of time, and we're still very good friends. Pitched to him, and he gave me a hundred thousand, and I quit my on job. the spot. Yeah, and I quit my job. Uh, just like yeah, that. Yeah. The so that all day, happened my job. very yeah. fast. Yeah. But but so you're okay. So you're you have this idea to build this this marketplace to share leveraging the, this whole craze around the sharing economy. Uh, but but it is a tech product you have to build here at the end of the day. Exactly. You 
don't have a lot of tech experience at this time. Where, how did you plan to navigate this whole space? Very good point. Uh, so basically what I did is I went back to uh, my, some of my colleagues at uh, Alimentation Maison. And uh, we had a developer in house. And uh, basically I, I pitched him the idea and he joined. Uh, he joined too right yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. And that's good validation for your business as well. That's one of the big things they say in the startup world. If you can't sell people on joining your business, then... You know, that's then there's there's a red flag there. Exactly. But already you're two for two in the first two people you, you talk exactly. to. Exactly. So actually, um, so I heard two people from Alimentation Maison. Uh, one of them became CTO and uh, the other one became CMO. Uh, they're not part of the company anymore uh, to this day, but this is with whom I started the business. Um, and that, and and so you're you're kind of strapped with the investment you got from your friend, and and are you bootstrapping some of this as well? Exactly. So we're bootstrapping. We're actually um, building the product and uh, the initial clients in my uh, basement. Right. As the, my garage as the first space. Okay. <laughs> so um, we, we got a couple of clients really fast. Basically, uh, I cold called people on Kijiji. Now we're looking for space. And then I, I convinced them to come uh, book my garage. <laughs> we had no product yet. Uh, so they just came and then put their stuff in my garage. Uh, we had some like very rudimentary platform. We built very quickly an MVP just to go to money really fast. Um, so like after a month, uh, so this is um, November 2016, we had uh, 10 clients so, so that were paying uh, on the platform. Uh, mostly in my garage, <laughs> mm. uh, but it, you know it's it's very important. Actually, it gave us a lot of insights uh, around the experience. Uh, so I'm still to this day a very active Sherby host. Uh, I've I think ten people now okay, in my so garage and in, in the portion of my basement in portions yeah. of your house. So people have dedicated spaces in your garage exactly. that they could come and put their stuff. Yeah, exactly. So but so how does it work, or, or and how are you developing the concept at this stage in terms of someone comes to your house, drops off stuff? How do you make sure? Do you have to be there at the time that they that they come by? Um, how do you make sure they don't go into someone else's stuff? How do you make sure they don't go into other parts of your house? I mean, these are all legitimate concerns, I guess. And and I guess an extension to that is people thought the same thing with Airbnb. There's no way anyone would ever want to stay in a stranger's home. And obviously that proved not to be right. But with this, it seems kind of like now there's stuff involved and... So how, how, what were you thinking at this time of how to get past those hurdles? So um, very good question. Uh, so basically at first, we knew from the get-go that we needed an insurance product, okay? Uh, not only to increase trust in the marketplace, but also like insure people's stuff and, and people's uh, uh, real estate. So we started looking for, for an insurance partner very early on. And uh, it took a year and a half, and we uh, finally closed a deal with uh, the biggest insurer in Canada, which is Intac Insurance. Wow. So they, um, they closed, uh, they, they created a product, uh, first of its kind uh, in, in the world, basically, which uh, insures renters and hosts uh, for 250K for their goods and civil liability, and uh, half a million for the, the spaces. So whatever transaction you do on Sherby, you're insured. So that, that was one of the uh, focus to solve that trust issue and security issue. Uh, obviously, when you store it, so myself, I'm a, what we call a on-request host. So basically, my, my, uh, my garage and my basement aren't accessible 24-7, and people know it when they book it. Okay. So basically, um, there's actually a lot of demand on the uh, storage, uh, in the storage industry that most people don't need to access their stuff 24-7 or even weekly. 
They just put stuff there, and then once they're ready to get it back, they come back and they put it up and they leave the space. And they would contact you and they want to come back and get it. Exactly. If, if it's on request. All through the Sherby platform. Exactly. They can arrange uh, a scheduling and stuff uh, on the platform. And they pay monthly for a dedicated space and that price depends on the space that they're booking? Exactly. On the square footage and the amenities the space brings. So if, there, if it's on the ground floor, if there's a security systems in place, like an alarm system, cameras and stuff, uh, you know, a lot of uh, different uh, amenities you can have as a Sherby host. Can it even help, offer to help to uh, the, help the person move in their stuff in your space? And for an extra for cost, right. Exactly. So basically, um, the host always has to be there. So I'm there when someone moves in or moves out or want to come pick up some stuff. So as a host, it's your responsibility to make sure that you know nobody takes other people's stuff. So uh, you have to remember whose stuff is what, where. Actually, what you do is, is there's some good practices, obviously, where you can you identify your stuff when you move in. Um, you know, you seal your all your mattresses and stuff like that. Just like if you would move in a regular storage space, where there's thousand people stirring stuff around you, you know, in the same building, which is creepy too. Like uh, it's it's. You know, there's, you know, what the other people storing, you know, next to you. You could <laughs> right? see it in a cage, I guess. Yeah, well, mo- depending most of the on the storage, type of- it's like a like a, a prison unit. I, I make the comparison that it looks like a prison. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So um, the goal is not only so to come back to value props. It's way cheaper. It's fifty percent cheaper than traditional storage. So it's way more affordable. It's closer to you as well, because instead of having like a centralized piece of, uh, of uh, you know, buildings in, in, in a city, it's decentralized completely. We have thousands of storage jobs in cities. So th- that's, uh, that's a big edge against uh, com- uh, competitors, but also it's way closer for clients. And the third one that we work on is the experience. Uh, storage companies are very um, focused on occupancy rate. For us, it's an important metric, but it's not the goal. The goal is to offer frictionless experience to the renter and the host. So basically, um, you know, you feel like you're storing in your an extension of your home, and that's that's our goal. Like to make it like if you're storing in your own basement. What what are the more common products you see people storing? Um, so we see a, a lot of stuff. So we we not only do like appliances and couch and boxes. But we also do car, boat, RV, uh, motorcycle storage because we're, we're space agnostic, basically. So compared to traditional storage, who has a facility that you know, most of the time can't accept boats and stuff, people can list garages, basements, rooms, attics, uh, outhouses. Backyards. Uh, or- exactly. Or like a big parking uh, spaces. Name it. You know? And these people can rent that, that space for whatever need they have uh, in terms of storage or, or car storage or motorcycle storage. So uh, you mentioned building a double-sided marketplace is, is tough. Uh, anyone that's attempted to do it could probably validate that. What, what, do, you, what do you recommend? How, how do you go about building a double-sided marketplace? You have two different types of people you need to market to come on the platform, right? So where do you even start with that? So a uh, very good question. So at first, uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. I hired an intern and, and myself at first. We're cold calling on Kijiji and Craigslist, basically trying to convince people uh, that we're already doing it. Like there's some people renting out garages and stuff there to join. So I had read a lot of things around marketplaces, and most of them uh, said that 
you need to focus on building supply first. So cold call, we had 70% uh, success rate on, on cold calls. So 70% of people we called, we signed them up on Sherby, which was uh, which is very good. These are people you're signing up to offer up space? Exactly. So basically, the onboarding, we closed them on the phone, onboarded them on the phone. What are they listing on Kijiji at that point that made you realize that they would be a good host for the platform? Like a garage, a basement, or like um, do-it-yourself storage units, uh, stuff like that. Okay, so people are already kind of listing these things to more validation for your... Exactly, for your exactly, exactly. That was part of my initial research as well. Um, so yeah, so we were onboarding them, but what happened is that we focused too much on supply. So we had to, at one point, like 400, 500 hosts and no demand. <laughs> we, had, we had not figured out how to bring people in. So what happened is that most of the supply churned. So we wasted our time. Because <laughs> so, they, they were like, look, I'm, I'm listed on your platform, but no one is using my space. Exactly. But there is nothing against... Is there what's so the negative had, for them for being listed on there? So, well, the the promise was that we would find them clients, and it, it, you know, payments are automatic, and uh, you know, you don't need to chase money around and stuff. That was the initial value props that we had uh, developed, and um, we didn't know how to get the demand in an efficient way and and, and constant uh, flow of demand. So. You know, their job to be done. There's a concept. Uh, there's a concept in management and uh, design that's called jobs to be done. Their jobs to be done is to make money, and we failed to make them money. So they churned. They hated our product because of that at first. And we we had to go back to the drawboard and say, okay, we need to balance out the marketplace. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So we started doing uh, more, uh, a little bit more content. And then, uh, you know, myself, I had no experience in, in digital marketing. So uh, I was mostly like a management person, salesperson. Uh, you know, I could get PR as well. I was good at cold calling, getting PR uh, and stuff like that. But I had no uh, digital marketing experience. Um, so we, we, you know, I, I, a year after, brought in someone from, uh, to, to do uh, digital marketing. And so that, that was the late uh, 2017, and we started seeing good results. So we, we what kind of marketing campaigns was he running at this uh, point? Most, so basically, we figured out that mostly most people that go on to look for storage or vehicle storage, they go on Google, right? Because it, it's an immediate need, uh, something that's not really planned out, and it's not, it's not something that you need constantly. So they're searching Daily. for solutions exactly, for this problem quickly, on Google. Exactly. And you realize that. Yeah. Exactly. So it took a lot of time uh, to realize that, which I, I think in hindsight is pretty easy. But <laughs> hmm. uh, So go figure. So, um, so yeah, so we, we started, uh, you know, uh, balancing out demand and offer uh, a little bit better. And we were able to get, uh, you know, uh, around 30 clients per week at, at this point. On the supply side, yeah, uh, on the demand side. Yeah, exactly. So matching, su successfully matching supply and demand. And, and so you did this by focusing on SEO, SEM type strategies? Exactly, exactly. So mostly SEM um, and, uh, and content, uh, which fueled a little bit of SEO. The, one of the advantages that we have against traditional self-storage is that we have thousands of listings of pages that get scrawled by Google. So, uh, and they rank very high on specific keywords. Uh, so like, 
cheap storage and unsick or something like that. Uh, so that that's actually a big edge we're working Brings on. Brings right in now. a lot of organic traffic to, exactly. and demand to the site. Exactly. So basically, uh, so end of 2017, we success. You know, we we started seeing a rise in our uh, growth. Um, we we had executed pretty well, I think. Uh, so it took like a good year to figure this out right a lot of uh, trials and tribulations around that period are you raising more money at this time or are you so continuing the at, at this time uh we raised we were actually so i was timing it with raising our first seed round so uh we wanted to raise 300 and um and <laughs> something happened Basically, the ICO and crypto boom started. Okay, so end of December, yeah, early early Jan, we we were like, okay, what what if we can extend the the vision of our product and develop a blockchain case for it, crypto case for it, and then raise like twenty million US. So not only that, that it would give us the means to achieve our mission and vision, but we also would get a very big edge against our competitors. Because at this, at this point, there's maybe 10 startups trying this in the world. Okay? So that was early 2018. Um, so I switched completely the focus of the business. We stopped growth in supply and demand, and we switched only to focus on shipping and ICO. So that was a big, bold bet again. Yeah, <laughs> you shifted your, your focus here. Exactly, shifted the focus. Yeah, I, I, had to, I had to make changes in the team as well, only to f- focus on the, on the ICO and build out um, a blockchain use case. So we created a white paper, 50 pages long white paper after a lot of research. We had no crypto experience at all. So, um, so I, again, a little bit like poker, deep dived into crypto and blockchain. And uh, yeah, we built a website for the ICO. Uh, I, you know, I got a team of advisory that had raised like 10, 20 million ICOs themselves successfully. So we were, were very were, intense. Were you finding that there is a case for this to incorporate blockchain technology or, or did you find yourself having to force this in to capitalize on this trend? I think there is one. Uh, there is one. And basically what we did, we extended the vision um, to moving, so basically we created what we called the Sherby, uh, um, the Sherby service chain. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it's it's an we wanted to Uberify the process with with tokens, where you would get insurance, moving services, the storage service, and all in one experience with tokens. Uh, so think of it maybe as um, operations in a factory. Like steps that would be like on the blockchain, the, driven by the, the Sherby token, and then so the insurance would be crowdsourced with the token, moving would be peer to peer with the token as well. So you you see where I'm going, like a complete ecosystem of moving and storage, driven by by the Sherby token. And that, that that's 
by no means an easy task at all. Like there's a lot of a lot of moving parts that go into building something like that. And like you said, it sounds like you put a lot of the other elements of the business on hold at this point. Finding exactly. supply, demand, and and exactly, we shut down growth completely and focus on that to raise twenty one uh, tw- twenty one million US. Actually, and other that than other than your friend that initially put in a hundred thousand dollars and some of the money you put in as well, you had no other investors on board at this point telling you not to do this or to do this. Right? Uh, actually, convinced our investors that it was the right uh, right, right thing to do uh, so that was uh, there was BDC and uh, a couple other angel investors at this point okay yeah. at that point you yeah. did have other people exactly so um, so convinced people that it was a I, I, I still think it, we we could have been successful the thing is that we missed that window where ICOs were, were very hot we it started going down um, so uh, we built a very solid white paper like 50 pages long white paper that was very solid very extensive in in tech also like you know we had one of our devs who became very uh, big at, you know not an expert but very knowledgeable in, in blockchain so we had plans to even build our own blockchain after uh, raising on the uh, ethereum blockchain so basically fast forward Spending a lot of money uh, on, on the ICO, uh, trying to raise that amount of money, uh, we're able to successfully raise uh, a, a portion of our uh, private round. So that's like um, I don't know if you're familiar with the safe uh, investment vehicle. It's a little bit like a convertible note, but it's it's a, a simple agreement for future uh, uh, equity. I think that's that's very common with Y Combinator exactly. uh, investments. Exactly. Right? So basically, it was like a safe, but for tokens. Um, and we had raised uh, some amount, uh, so we, we, we started gaining momentum, and then we had to give that, all that money back, by the way, uh, because in June, end of June, uh, the CRA, so that's uh, the... Canadian Revenue Agency? Exactly. Uh, no, uh, not the CRA, sorry. It was, uh, was it the CRA? I think it's the Securities Agency, CSA, Canadian Securities Agency, uh, drafted some uh, laws around ICOs, uh, in Canada for um, uh, not security tokens, but um, utility token. So we were not a security. Right. <laughs> that. And, that, and that's how, just for some context here at the time, because I remember following this this craze very closely, but that's how a lot of people were getting around having to go through the SEC in the US or the CSA exactly. in Canada and, and being able to bring a lot of these tokens to public, which essentially did operate as any traditional investment, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and our goal was not only to raise more money more quickly, but also to expand. It was a means to expand. Think about it. You'll have thousands of people holding your token in different parts of the world, and they can themselves start the Sherby craze and start renting out their own space, you know? So for us, it was also an expansion strategy. And uh, basically, after uh, the, the CSA uh, drafted out the, these laws, we had to shut it down because otherwise uh, we would, you know, be very illegal. Uh, and, you know, I knew going back to our value props for the Sherby service that we had something. So I didn't want to risk this. So we uh, shut down the ICO. You had to give the money back. Yeah, I had to give the money back, shut down the ICO. Had to re- reorg the, the the company because you spent a lot of time and money on hiring and people. Exactly, on so uh, need, needed to do some reorg also. And uh, at this point, I was like, okay, what what am I gonna do? Like, is it worth it to keep going, or I, should I change project and stuff? But was share be all together? Exactly. Like you were- but it it was an internal questioning. You know, uh, I think it's very important to doubt yourself 
a lot of the time because periodically, that makes you, right. exactly, it makes you think about, it. are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? So basically, I, at this time, I said, yes, I am doing the right thing. It's, some, it's a service that people want. We're solving a real need. So we're going to keep going. So raised a little bit more money from friends and, and other angels, and then we got back to growing the business. So that, that's like in August 2018. In hindsight now, having gone through that whole process and everything you invested into launching an ICO, do you regret that decision? Um, I, I'm not the type of person that regrets, okay? Um, I, I try to learn from my experiences in a positive way and make myself and the people around me better. You know, we learned a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, we expanded the vision for Sherby, which is still ex executable without the blockchain. So, you know, we, we built something that we can reuse and uh, met a lot of very intelligent people along the way as well. So, and now we got back to focusing on growth. And, uh, you know, we, we were pretty, you know, we, I'm pretty proud of what the team has been ac accomplishing in the last four to five months. So basically you could say that Sherby relaunched in August 2018. <laughs> After that whole, exactly. the, the, that yeah, whole period. Exactly. Huh? So how many employees does Sherby have right now? So right now we're eight, eight okay. employees. And uh, we're, uh, so we have a little bit over 400 active rentals. Uh, we have uh, close to 2,000 hosts uh, in 5,000 spaces. 5,000 yeah. in how many different cities? In three cities. In so three cities. Quebec, Montreal, and um, Toronto. Yeah. And you mentioned that one of, one of the, the, the key missions for Sherby is to focus on the, the ease, of, ease of use of the exactly. product. Um, what are some of the important metrics that you look at on a month-to-month -month basis that you validate that are KPIs for you? Yeah, so a uh, good question. So basically, we look at, obviously, at MRR. Uh, we look at active hosts. Uh, we look at hosts who relist more, more space. Uh, we look at active rentals, active renters, because uh, we have renters that rent more than one space. Uh, we look also at uh, the onboarding, um, the onboarding flow, because one of the things that we found out recently is that if we invest short term a little bit more into onboarding for our hosts. So one of our uh, focus in 2019 is highly on hosts uh, because they're our product. They are the building blocks of Sherby. They're our community, basically. Not to steal the words of Airbnb, but it's true. They're the, they're, they're the heart of, of Sherby. So basically, we invest more into onboarding them, making sure they understand how it works, making sure they want to you know, talk to it about the, to their friends, uh, making sure that they, they're successful, they make money, that they relist uh, space also. Uh, so basically, now we see an organic trend in hosts. They're building self-storage units. So like regular people like you and me, not even businesses that do storage, they're building like do-it-yourself units, self-storage. To add on the space. Yeah, exactly, because they can make thousands per month. But it's recurring no hassle, no hassle revenue. Right, because it's not like, well, first of all, it's similar to how a lot of people with, with, all, with Airbnb now, they buy units exactly. just to list on Airbnb. Um, but with Airbnb, there's a lot more maintenance involved. Right? You got to get a cleaner after and you got to make sure the place doesn't get trashed. And Exactly. So for this, it makes sense for someone. I could see someone wanting to create extra storage space to list on the platform and create more income for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Because afterwards, it's, it's not a lot of management and you get like a 1000 1500 per month steady. 
that's nice, right? With no ma management at all or very low management. Like you need to be there when someone comes in and come, goes out. Like that's it. So you, you were born in this province. Uh, you built, uh, you have a, uh, you went through a lot here and now you built your startup in this province, in the city of Montreal. Um, what, what has been your experience in the startup community here in Montreal? And, and do you think it's important to have a presence in traditional startup hubs like Silicon Valley? Uh, or is is there enough here for you? And what what do you what kind of what do you leverage here in the Montreal startup community? When we started, you know, I had, I'm a first time founder, so uh, not a lot of experience at first. The community, uh, I think, in the past 10 years has been you know growing a lot, right? People like. Uh, you know, real ventures, you know, organizations like Real Ventures and other VCs, Notman House, uh, you know, they've built, they're, they worked very actively to build that community. And it, for me, like as a first time founder with no contacts at all, it greatly helped me. Like to, to I went in the, into these, these events, made contacts and uh, learned a lot from them. So at first, you know, good, very good experience. Um, I'd say talking with other founders uh, from Montreal and myself from my own experience, it's a little bit harder to raise funds in Montreal and in Canada in general. But it, we're getting there, I think. So to answer your question, I think it's how I see it is that for me, it's very important to invest in flourishing the ecosystem and where they, you know, they gave you a chance to, to say it like this. But I think you need help from the outside as well as a, as a French or even like a Montreal or Toronto startup. Um, so I would say don't hesitate to make con contacts in SF in, in New York uh, where big money is right now and where a lot of big bold bets are, are being made in startups. So don't hesitate to do that. But my perspective is that I will always try to reinvest in Montreal because Montreal gave me that chance to be an entrepreneur which I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago it wouldn't have been possible or n a lot harder, right? Are you actively raising money now? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, we actually closed uh, a round, undisclosed amount, but uh, enough money to, uh, to, uh, to go uh, on for 12 months. And we're preparing ourselves uh, to raise a uh, proper seed round for uh, 2 to $3 million in June. Yeah. I come back from the future and I tell you five years from now, Sherby is a massive success. What does that success look like to you? So su success to me, um, you know, going back from my experience as a poker player, I was rich. Um, I'm not a millionaire uh, anymore. Uh, I intend to be in the future, but that's not my goal. Money doesn't bring you happiness and I lived it. I was more depressed when I was rich than I am now. And the reason why is that most people put goals in terms of monetary uh, values, and money is not a goal. It's a, it's a it's a instrument. It's it's a side effect of success of bringing value in the world. Um, so I focus on giving value to our customers and renters and hosts. And you know we use comp competition as fuel, but we also because we're competitive, but. What's most important, not, not to steal words from Jeff Bezos, it's, it's always day one and you focus on your customers, you're going to make it. Focus on their needs, anticipate their needs and develop for that and you're going to make it big. So how I envision success in, in, you know, in five years, uh, my goal is, is to, in terms of market cap to be a, a unicorn, uh, to be in every major city in North America uh, and uh, you know, 
change the way we store, basically. Maxim Vilmer, co-founder and CEO of Sherby. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca.